Hello and welcome to the Emergence Discipleship Podcast. As a church, it's our hope that the proclamation of God's Word on Sundays would turn into the application of God's Word in our daily lives, leading to the transformation of people in our local communities. To that end, we pray that this podcast would serve to further equip you with more insight, background, and context into the themes and topics we study each week, first as we gather together to worship Jesus, and then as we go to make disciples. Thank you for joining us here today, and let's get started as we dive into this week's discussion. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we are doing a deep dive into Zechariah 13. Doug, is that where we're going? Uh, that, among other things. but Transubstantiation? Based, yes. Well, yeah. That's my so question. That's my big question. We're basing today. it off of Matthew 26. Obviously, that's where we are in the sermon mm-hmm. uh, series. Uh, but we will be going to Zechariah 13 also. Okay. And surrounding texts. So nice. yeah. what do you got for us, Doug? Well, um, okay. So um, I guess we'll begin with Zechariah. So we're kind of beginning a little bit further into Matthew 26, and then we'll go back to the Lord's Supper stuff. Okay. Um, an interesting feature about uh, Matthew's gospel, and not just Matthew's gospel, is that more than once he references the same, uh, let's say, um, part of the book of Zechariah, which is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. If you're trying to find it, it is on, I'm, I'm looking at page 965. <laughs> I'm looking at 798 in my mind. There you go. Now, it's right after Haggai, uh, which is uh, another of the minor prophets. And um, and what's interesting is that Matt, uh, uh, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13 here. Okay. And then... Uh, Matthew, in talking about Judas in chapter 27, when Judas hangs himself, um, cites Zechariah 11 there. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and they're both parts of this, like, um, shepherd motif that Zechariah has. Okay. And then in John's gospel, John cites Zechariah 13 when he references the water that pours out of Jesus' side. Interesting. When it says, uh, yeah. Um, so basically, there's a number of references to Zechariah here. And- the same area of Zechariah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So Zechariah is kind of like, it's a very um, apocalyptic book, which is the same kind of genre as Revelation, but it's an earlier uh, kind of uh, stage mm. in apocalyptic literature. Obviously, it's a couple hundred years. It's written to the return exiles from Judah. Okay. Um, so from Babylon, actually, to Judah. Mm. So we're thinking like uh, you want to be thinking like late 500 BC or so. This is the Persian period. Okay. And um, uh, long story short, we could go into a lot of this. So it's still um, quite a ways away until Jesus comes. Yeah, quite a way before Je- ways before Jesus. Okay. And but there's a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of this is talking. Ze- Zechariah is, is dissatisfied, or God, the Lord is dissatisfied with the way the Judean returned exiles are being. And just for those who don't know what Judean return exile is, so uh, in in Israel, okay, the, um, the 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 northern and southern kingdoms are eventually judged by God. Mm. The northern kingdom, uh, it which is basically. Um, uh, the majority of them mm. are are sent into exile uh, under the Assyrian Empire in in 722 BC, and then the um, the Southern Kingdom, which is what we th- which is headed in Jerusalem, which is uh, which is the Kingdom of Judah, mm. is sent into exile in 586 BC under the Babylonians. So they're taken they're carried off into exile. 
uh, in Babylon, and then the Babylonians are conquered by the uh, Medo-Persians. Okay. Uh, so this is Darius, Cyrus, the Cyrus the Great. These oh, guys. Oh, Darius the. Mm. Uh, Darius the Mede, are you thinking? Yeah, Darius the Mede. Yeah, yeah it's a little, it's a little ambiguous who that is, but that's another discussion. Whether or not that's actually. Uh... <clears throat> well, it's definitely a historical figure. It's just mm. hard to know. It's just there's just a little bit of disagreement as to who uh, Daniel is referring to. Right. Uh, when, but but at any rate. <clears throat> he had a lot to do with Xerxes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well. You, you, okay. You're yeah. About sorry. I'm not going to yeah. open that. I'm yeah. not going <laughs> to. No. No. Seriously. So, like, apparently, Darius the Mede was the one that came, and he was like the king slayer, so mm-hmm. to speak. Where he, at least when I was kind of studying this a, mm-hmm. a while ago, uh, it was suggested that he was the one that actually killed Xerxes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a whole nother. Yeah. That's a whole nother subject. Let's not tell everyone where king slayer language comes from. This is a Christian podcast. Yep. <laughs> Darius the Mede, that's where it came from. Yes. So, all right. So, at any rate, um, the, the Persian uh, Empire allows, the Persian king uh, Cyrus allows them to return, allows a certain number of Israelites to return and rebuild Judah. And so, this is uh, where um, some of these latter prophets are, are preaching to. Uh, so, and uh, the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, they are um, uh, very, very closely related. Um, and, um, and so here we have, you know, the, basically oracles of judgment start back up against, against them for some of the things that are, that they're doing wrong. And then, which include promises of future glory, like we're very used to seeing in the prophets. Right. And Zechariah's, uh, promises of future, um, basically feed into the ultimate hope of scripture where God is is going um, in terms of the end game, his end mm. game. The master plan. <clears throat> the master plan, yeah. Okay. So, um, for example, the latter part of chapter 12 talks about, um, about the nations encircling Jerusalem and Jerusalem becoming a cup of reeling and staggering to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, their move against God's people will be their undoing, in other words. But then it talks about, um, like in, in verse 10 and following, I'll pour out on the inhabitants of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that, and here's what John quotes, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an old only child. So you have this wow. future repentance of Israel for, foreseen here. Um and um, not only that, but then as chapter 13 begins, and we recall that these verse and chapter divisions are not there originally in the Hebrew, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Wow. And that idea of cleansing water um, uh, is a very prominent thing also yeah, in the gospel yeah. of especially in the gospel of John, John yep. uh, you have to be born born of the water and the spirit mm. um, right unless I wash you you have no place with me mm. whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water all mm. kinds of stuff like that right uh, in the gospel of John and interestingly John is the one who notes the water coming from Jesus's side along with his blood mingled with his blood. Interesting. I never I never realized is John the only one that notes that? John's the only one who notes that and he's the one who has this strong kind of temple imagery 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the one when Jesus says, destroy this uh, temple and in three days I will raise it up. Mm-hmm. He adds the explanatory note, but he was talking about the temple that was his body. Hmm. And so, and and in the Old Testament, particularly in Ezekiel 47, you have, and also here you have motifs of cleansing water flowing from the temple. Hmm. And so that seems to be bound up in theologically with what John means. And so John cites this passage of Ze- this area of Zechariah, which also talks about a cleansing fountain coming for God's people. Mm. So that's probably at least part of the the- theological um, implications of why John includes that in his gospel. Now you've got me thinking about like every water verse in the Bible. Is that also where like the woman at the well, you can drink There's, from me and you shall thirst no more? That's prominent in the woman at the well also. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, because he, he talks about the he talks about the living. I'm going to give you yeah, living, living water, water here. Yeah, uh. yeah. John, the water motif in the Gospel of John is very important. That's so cool. Yeah, I never I never <clears throat> knew that before. Okay, yeah, it's very it's very interesting. Um, so, at any rate, for our purposes, uh, there's also bound up in this section of Zechariah is. Um, is this idea that also... <clears throat> so this section we're talking about, we're talking about uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13. 11, 12, right? and 13, yeah. And you just read, you read a few passages here uh, from 12. Yes, uh, 12, 10, and following in the beginning of 13. Yep. Mm-hmm. But if you back up to chapter 11, you also see you also see that a big part of these oracles is uh, shepherd imagery. Okay. And so uh, in verse 4 of chapter 11... Uh, God instructs Zechariah, uh, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So Zechariah here, and if you read on, you see what's going on is the prophets uh, on occasion, one way of prophesying in Israel was to do these prophetic enactments. So okay. Zechariah or Isaiah would would have to walk naked in front of the city as the inhabitants will be carried off naked. Um, Ezekiel has to lay on his side, and then he has to lay on his other side, and he has to construct this little mini Jerusalem out of bricks and, huh. and kind of like play G.I. Joe with them to show what's going to happen, you know, construct siege works against it, and uh, bake your cakes over dung and stuff like that, right? Wow. These are uh, dig a hole in the wall, um, take off Jeremiah. <laughs> Take off your underwear and go bury it and then come back to it. Yeah. Okay. God gets creative. <laughs> Here, Zechariah is commanded, become a shepherd. And it's kind of unclear what the prophetic enactment would be. Probably would mean that he dresses like a shepherd and shouts stuff at the, at the rebels. Okay. It's like, I'm your shepherd. Or, you know, something more involved. It's a little unclear. We're not given tons of details as to exactly what this looks like. But the point is, Zechariah is supposed to become a shepherd to is to illustrate how the Lord's the shepherd to them mm-hmm. and how they are going to how they have rejected the Lord as shepherd over them. Mm-hmm. Can I ask uh, a question about sure. translating the sentence? So in chapter eleven, verse four, thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Mm-hmm. Now, Doug, it's when when the Lord's saying this, is he saying become a shepherd that's doomed to slaughter or become oh, no, a shepherd of the, the flock? The flock doomed. is doomed to, sh- to slaughter. I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that definitely, um, that definitely, uh, modifies that. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so it, it, in fact, there's a relative pronoun there in the Hebrew, the flock, which is 
doomed, doomed to, to slaughter. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's actually we, the flock of slaughter, which is doomed to slaughter. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. Specifically uh, set aside for slaughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right. So we have the shepherding imagery here. Yeah. So, um, uh, so you got the shepherding in, imagery there, right? And, um, and and so in then verse seven, so I became the shepherd of the sh- of the flock doomed to sl- to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two stabs, one I named favor and the other I named union, and I tended the sheep. Uh, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became a pay. So there's like you know three leaders of Israel who are lousy shepherds, right? And Zechariah okay. deals with them and stuff. The, the the wording of the prophecy there there are interpretive challenges here, like is exactly what he's saying and everything. Okay, this but, is this is Zechariah speaking. Yes, this is Zechariah say speaking. Okay, and uh, and then in verse ten, and I took my staff favor and I broke it annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. Probably there, that that is one of the weirdly worded verses because it suddenly shifts, you know, sounds like it's the Lord talking. Yeah. Although it's just as possible that Zechariah is saying, the agreement that I had to be their shepherd, I broke. Okay. You know, and that's, so he breaks one of his staffs and then he goes and he breaks his second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Very powerful imagery here. Okay. okay? And uh, and then um, the last thing, or, or the thing that happens in verse in verse twelve, um, then I um, I said to them because basically he's at the point where he's like I've shepherded you, you've been stubborn sheep. The other shepherds here are horrible, and uh, I'm done. So I'm going to come and collect my pay now. And it says. Um, they weighed out. Uh, I, then I said to them, "If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them." Wow! And they and weighed they out weighed out my wages thirty, 30 pieces, pieces of, of silver. silver. Yeah. Where have we seen that? Then, then the Lord said to me, "Throw it to the potter, the lordly price." Notice the sarcasm there. Hmm. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them to the house of the Lord to the potter. Right. Wow. And then he breaks the staff union. Um, and so the idea here is that, is that, um, all I was worth to them was after all that I did, what I was worth was 30 pieces of silver, right? Which is a direct correlation to the price that Judah, or Judah, sorry, Judas And here we see how uh, this kind of concept of prophetic typology and fulfillment works, right? That Jesus comes as... Gospel of John, the good shepherd, right? To shepherd right. God's people. And uh, and all he winds up being worth to the people and to their false shepherds is 30 shekels yeah. of silver. Even to those closest to him. Yes. As, you know, Judas was one of his... And speaking of those closest to him, the shep- this shepherd idea gets gets picked back up in chapter 13, verse 7. And um, and here is where G- what Jesus quotes to his disciples when he tells them, you're all going to leave me. So he says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And this is the Lord speaking. Um, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. So there's some interesting Christology there, right? The man okay. who stands next to the Lord. Okay. And awake, my sword. So again, this idea that it is the Lord who is, um, who is uh, whose sword is unleashed against the shepherd. So these events that are... And and we we talked about the interplay between 
God sovereignly leading Jesus to the cross, and yet it's being done by the wicked acts of human men. Mm. So it's the Lord's sword that's against the shepherd, but it's against the shepherd. So, And what happens? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Hmm. I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer to them. They will say, I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So the shepherd gets struck, the sheep get slaughtered, and then a time of refining happens for them. And after the refining comes, they come out the other end, and they are uh, committed to the Lord. Mm. And that's the idea. Sheep will be and scattered, right? The sheep will be scattered, yeah. yeah. You and said slaughtered. I'm sorry. Sca- sla- yeah, <laughs> sorry. The slaughtered sorry, yeah, yeah. Still thinking slaughtered. Those yeah. S words, scattered. So. <laughs> and yeah, so, that, so that's what Jesus um, cites as kind of the, 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 preface, the, the um, precedent for what's going to happen to them. That's so fascinating. And, yeah. I think like, so I don't know the, the term I've always understood to use this is um, like a, a secondary fulfillment, right? Yeah. Or secondary. Yeah. Is that the, like, it's, it's, it's an interesting, yeah, I think that's a helpful way to think of it. Mm-hmm. The other way to think of it too, is that, or um, dual fulfillment there. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about this before in Matthew, but there are the, the, the concept of biblical prophetic prophecy and fulfillment is includes different types of prophecy and fulfillment. Okay. The way that we typically think of it is as a ver- as, as verbal prediction, right? So um, the okay. Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. There, there's your fulfillment, sure. right? But there's other ways in which this, in fact, I would say possibly even more frequently, another big way that prophecy fulfillment works in the Bible is this kind of patterning where um, things are a certain way or certain something happens or something exists and a fuller version of that thing happening or existing happens in the future. Okay. Okay. So, um, so um, we see patterns of this all throughout scripture, all throughout scripture. Actually a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. you and I did a deep dive um, when we were talking about, um, just kind of, you know, the end that's coming and Jesus is saying, uh, it shall be like those days yes. and, and yeah. never shall be again. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. Um, I, I forget the exact verse. I yeah. don't know if you have it on your mind, but um, where he's basically saying it will be like this that has happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So basically that past event is going to happen again, you know, talking yeah. about Roman occupation and everything else and the, and the sacking of the temple and shall never be again. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So he's using that as a kind of a dual fulfillment, right? Right. Is that a good yeah. example of that? Yeah, exactly. Um, and another, another big one that we'll see coming up, right. Mm-hmm. Is the idea of um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You uh, and I yeah. were talking about this personally the other yeah. day and um, without, without spoiling too much of it. Right. Uh, those words were originally penned in Psalm 22 by David. By David, right? And um, and a big one of the big issues in the early church was getting across the idea, convincing people of the idea that the the Messiah suffered, that hmm. the Messiah died, right? And and a big part of the emphasis, a big part of that early apologetic is this notion that well, yeah, da- look, and they they would ransack the Psalms. And show how David suffered. Mm. And so how fitting is it for great David's greater son Mm. to suffer too? 
And so you have this prophetic patterning. Mm. And so the same thing here. It, Zechariah really was, really did enact his, his role as a shepherd, as a prophetic shepherd figure, right? And he really was paid 30 shekels of silver. He really was commanded to throw it to the potter who, uh, for the, 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 who belonged to the temple, right? Mm. Um, and now the greater shepherd suffering an even greater rejection is sold is is valued at this price also and the money that is paid for him is thrown right wow. so that's kind of how what one of the ways in which the biblical writers stitched stitch scripture together and um and Matthew was fond of reading things this way that's yeah. so cool mm-hmm. now um, Doug yeah um, I don't know if you had more that you wanted to talk about. No, but. we could talk Lord's Supper stuff. So, <laughs> Lord's Supper stuff. So, one of the other things that I kind of wanted to ask you about this week was mm-hmm. the kind of the concept of what we would call transubstantiation, right? Mm-hmm. Which really is this idea that you're just going right for it. I'm going right for it, right? Uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> That's a good like tra- transition. Like, like, <laughs> we're not using in so pretending like we were going to talk about something else. What do you mean? No, just kidding. Were we? <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, no, I don't know. Fine, yeah. Doug and I are shooting from the hip with this one. Is that my lotion? No, that that's you have my hand. I have the same hand cream as you. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I thought you. It's the uh, Dollar Shave Club hand cream. Yeah, I'm actually yeah. allergic to that. Are you? Yeah, you're Can welcome. I have it? Yes, you're welcome <gasps> to mine. Yep. But in any case, um, all right. So let's talk about this, Doug. Uh, big word, right? Transubstantiation, which is really the concept that. Uh, during communion, the elements, right, the bread and the wine, or in our case, crackers and grape juice, are somehow, correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, are somehow endowed with um, a power that is actually the body and blood of Jesus, that somehow they, yeah, they become so, the true body and blood of Christ. So the, the, so this is the, uh, this is the Roman Catholic understanding of, uh, of the Eucharist, the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper, communion. Um, and the, the words, uh, Jesus, um, Freudian slip there. Alex is eating, uh, uh, guac Chipotle. and chip, <laughs> chips and guac from Chipotle. Can you hear it? I, I can hear it in my headphones. So they oh, can, can you really? Oh, crud. It's fine. Keep crunching. I thought I was being, Pretend, uh, yeah, but we're talking about the Lord's supper where they're eating unleavened bread. So it's hmm. a good sound effect. Okay. No, please, please, please. <laughs> um, at any rate, um, so uh, the, I don't think any – it's probably not a big mystery to most people that Roman Catholics have a different understanding of what's going on when they take the, the Lord's Supper. In fact, right. it's so – it's such a different understanding that I personally would never partake of Roman communion. Okay. And I'm pretty sure that that would – is fine with Catholics because I'm not a confirmed Roman Catholic. Yeah. If, the, if I understand right, yeah. correctly, if – in. And I'm not. A, I'm disclaimer. I don't really truly understand the Catholic religion to its nth degree. But from what I do understand, if you are not Catholic, uh, at least in a Catholic tradition, you should not take communion. Right, um, unless in more recent years, because there is definitely a, a a hard turn left, especially with like Pope Francis. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know some if they've loosened that a little bit. But yeah, my understanding of, of but at any rate, so. So it's well known that that they believe that the we what we would say is that the uh, the cracker and the grape juice or the wine the bread and the wine symbolize symbolize right. Christ's body and blood. Right. And uh, this is a ritual reenactment that we do, or you know, however you want to phrase it. Um, Similar to that baptism. symbol that symbolizes something spiritual. Yeah. 
Whereas uh, Roman Catholics believe that these sacraments, um, particularly the ones that would be relevant to us as Protestants, would be the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, affect bring grace. That you actually receive grace from them. That they are effective in themselves. Sure. Okay. Um, and moreover, this idea, as you said, that the elements in the Lord's Supper are actually Jesus's true flesh and true blood that and what they the word that they refer the 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 way that they describe it is as transubstantiation so what is this uh it it actually helps to kind of pull to kind of pick the word apart so uh, now in order to explain their theology about this um in the middle ages uh they um uh aristotle's um, the philosopher Aristotle's distinction uh, distinctions were brought in. So he distinguishes between form and substance. When you want to ask what is a thing, okay. what is a horse, what is a chair, how is it that like this is a chair but that is also a chair, right? And, okay. and so he distinguishes between form and substance. Uh, a form is essentially the form of a thing, the shape of the thing, the look of it and everything, right? The substance is what it actually is. Okay. Okay. So think of transformation, like a transformer, the robots, the right? Optimus uh, Prime. The Optimus Prime. Now he's, you're speaking my language. He's though. a truck and then he transforms, his form changes. But in both places, so his form changes, but his substance is the same. He's Optimus Prime as the truck and he's Optimus Prime as the robot. Right? Sure. Although his form has changed. Mm. In transubstantiation, the form stays the same, mm. but the substance changes. Okay. What it actually is changes. I see. Okay? That's why they call it transubstantiation rather than transformation. Okay. Okay? And uh, as with a lot of Roman Catholic doctrines, um, you basically... <laughs> You, you give credence to a certain interpretation of the biblical text, and once the door is open, you drive a tank through that door <laughs> and bring all this other stuff in. Sure. So they would say, he says, this is my body. Right, yeah. He says, this is my blood. So, of course, transubstantiation. Sure. Right? You know, sure. And the way this happens, again, is by the Roman priest saying the mass over them, and and, and there's all kinds of other, like you know, theology that we would disagree with in, in terms of the understanding of what's happening in the mass. And, sure. Um, but many other traditions that have kind of come to accompany that. Right, right. Yeah. And and we just simply point out that Jesus talks like this all the time. Right. Okay. Um, uh, the, the, so the, the, the world is the field, right? Okay. The sower is the son of man. Mm. Okay. I am the door. Mm. Uh, the common things are like oftentimes Jesus speaks in metaphors. Mm. And there's no reason to think that he's not speaking that way here. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, and it just kind of, I think the burden of proof is the one is lies on the side of the one who wants to import an elaborate theology onto this and to say, how do you get from there to there mm. rather than to the, uh, the simpler interpretation of it, which is 
that just as baptism, there's no reason to think that baptism is act- actually brings about the spiritual change. The physical act the of baptism. The physical act of, of baptism, yes. It's so, worth mentioning the difference, right, between what we would kind of describe as a spiritual baptism versus a physical baptism. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just in the sense, so uh, what I mean by that, right, is as Christians, we... Um, when we become Christians, um, when we when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, Ephesians talks about uh, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, right? As like a down payment of the kingdom. And uh, we believe that that's God's Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is endowed to the believer right. at, at that moment. Now, the physical act of baptism and what we practice together as a church, when we gather together and we have our worship services and we're dunking people in the water, we're doing a physical act, which is symbolic of the inward truth, right? Yeah. Um, another one that I use kind of from time to time, you know, similar with communion is like my wedding ring, right? I'm, I'm wearing my wedding ring. And if I take this on or off, you know, whether the ring is on or whether the ring is off doesn't make me married or less married. It's, it's just a symbol for an inward reality uh, that I'm married to my wife. I, yes. um, and so just a, an outward symbol for that. And so the, uh, the physical act of baptism, uh, when we, um, when we share together kind of what Jesus has done and, and listen to the testimonies of people that have come to recognize that. And, uh, just like Jesus, uh, died, was buried and resurrected. We, uh, take folks, dump them into the water and, and pull them back out again. So yeah. that's one act, uh, similar kind of to communion as well. Yeah. So just, we just kind of wanted to share that with you guys just to, um, kind of put you on the page of uh, one one pl- where we would disagree with Roman Catholics on this and kind of explain a word that may or may not come up in your discussions or uh, you know study of, of the the Lord's um, the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you get the uh, chance this week yeah. too, definitely dive into Zechariah chapters 11, 12, and 13. I mean, it's just littered with a lot of really cool, you know, yes. I, I guess dual fulfillment, right? Yeah. But a lot of um, very clear kind of allusions to, to Christ that's the that's to come. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. That was fun, man. Yeah. Hopefully you guys found this interesting and informative and uh, maybe even encouraging and challenging in a few ways. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you. Take care.